Amen. Well, happy Sunday, everybody. Or uh, actually, probably not that happy of a Sunday. <laughs> you know, I'm standing here, sitting here looking at a camera, which feels uh, at a minimum unnatural. Uh, you know, personally, when I first pulled in the parking lot this morning, I just feel like I got hit by this wave of sadness because uh, I don't get to this. This is the best eye contact that I get, which is this fake looking into a camera thing. And if I'm honest, I just don't like it at all. Uh, I wish we could be together in the flesh, but we can't be today. And so this is the next best thing we get. Um, in particular, if you're not a part of Redemption Gateway, but yet you found uh, this link and you're watching with us, thanks so much for uh, tuning in. I hope that you kind of get a taste for who we are, even though this is nothing like who we are. And so uh, thanks for being here. I, uh, you know, this week, thinking and praying through what to talk about, you know, we kind of went a different direction. A lot of it was uh, just this reality of what does faith look like in a pandemic? Because I think those are have faith, be faithful, are all things that uh, cliches that get chucked around, but what do they actually mean? What do they feel like? You know, and one of my favorite things I get to do as a pastor is I get to do weddings and weddings are uh, this interesting celebration of uh, praise and happiness, families coming together and two becoming one. Uh, but there's this weird part of weddings where like right at the center of the wedding, there's these vows that are remarkably sober and they're super down. And it's just interesting seeing newlyweds take these vows who have no idea what they mean, uh, vows who uh, are not prepared for what these are going to actually look like. But right in the middle of that, there's this till death do us part, which means you're saying best case scenario, this ends in a funeral. But right in the center of that, even before then, it says in sickness and in health for richer or for poorer. And most of the time when you say those vows, you just repeat them and they mean nothing to you. But why are those included in the vows? And the question is, is, is valid because a lot of times we don't know what the difficulty of faith or faithfulness will look like until things actually get hard and difficult. And so I want us to reflect on us as a church when we think about the fact that we're the bride of Christ. What does faith look like in richer and poorer or in sickness and in health? And so rather than just repeating that cliche, I want us to really kind of get beneath it and understand what are some of the ways that God's word instructs us to have faith in uh, hard times, turbulent times, overreacting times, underreacting times, whatever the situation is, I want us to consider that. So let me pray. And then I have actually five things that faith says about uh, how we engage a pandemic. Lord, give us soft hearts and open ears. Amen. All right, so the first thing that we're going to see is that faith takes us into the house of mourning. I'm going to talk about this out of Ecclesiastes 7. So a lot of the times we flinch in things like this with anger, right? There's this there's this hostility, this reaction, you know, like this morning, I'm frustrated that I, you know, Christ Jesus came to us, not in the appearance of flesh, but in the flesh. And yet here I am having to come to you in the appearance of the flesh. And it's frustrating. It's angry. Um, I, I don't like it. But part of what's going on is that anger oftentimes is protecting just actual sadness. And I want to kind of talk about that sadness here. So this is Ecclesiastes 7, um, verses 2 through 4. Um, it says, it is better. This might be the most displeased verse in the whole Bible, by the way. It is better to go to the house of mourning than into the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind. And the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness, the face of the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of the morning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. 
a lot of what's going on here is Solomon, the wisest man in all of history, is saying foolish people avoid grieving what needs to be grieved. Foolish people say things like everything is fine when things are not fine. Foolish people say peace, peace when there is no peace. And we want to be wise people who, when there are things to be grieved and things to be mourned, we go there. We go there emotionally. We go there um, literally. And I, I want us to be people who go there, that I am deeply sad that I have to look at a camera and see you this morning. I'm sad on the hugs I'm going to miss out. I'm sad on the eye contact I'm missing out on. I'm sad that the church that's gathering is not here. A lot of, you know, even one of the reasons we're not doing communion in this service is because it's impossible to do communion when you're not communing together. And so there are things that I'm missing out on that I'm grieving, that I'm sad about. Not only that, I'm sad about the stock market. I'm sad for the vulnerable people in our church who uh, are full of fear, probably soberly, because this is something that may be coming for them. And I'm sad about more than anything else, uh, the empty seats in front of me, the empty parking lot outside the church, and that the church doesn't get to be the church this morning in a, in a physical sense. You know, I'm grateful for technology and the way this uh, is giving us this something is better than nothing, but it's still not the real thing. And I want us to be people who mourn, who grieve. And sometimes what happens is uh, instead of grieving or mourning, we just get angry to kind of protect the the vulnerable emotion of sadness, or sometimes we just minimize. And that's actually a way of preserving the illusion of control. Everything's fine. There are no problems. And a lot of times too, uh, when the status quo is basically good for you, it's convenient to minimize. Uh, this is how I felt, honestly, the first half of this week. People are freaking out. And I'm saying things are fine. The means is blowing out of proportion. But as I read and learned more and more, I felt like my ignorance was traded for information. I start to realize that it was actually... Um, pride that was leading me to minimize the situation and so maybe some of us in our church are doing that maybe we're saying this is not a big deal people just need to get over it um but i think a lot of times that's just pride trying to protect some status quo thing because if things are sad then i have to feel sad i don't want to feel sad but faith takes us into the house of mourning foolishness causes us to avoid the house of mourning so i hope that uh, whether you feel deeply sad or deeply afraid that you're able to go into that place uh, and have whatever the analogy of a funeral is for your own heart and your own mind. The second thing that we see um, is, is uh, I'm going to talk about this out of Deuteronomy, is that faith does not allow for negligent disregard. A lot of times we think that faith is just kind of this have faith, meaning I don't have to do anything, or have faith, meaning I don't really want to take into consideration other people, or have faith in my can use my seatbelt, or have faith fill in the blank. You know, and it's like this, this blank check for I don't want to be inconvenienced by having to consider the people. But um, this is a pretty sub substantial verse. A couple of these next verses I'm going to read seem like they have nothing to do with what we're talking about at first, but they do. So I'm going to read um, Deuteronomy 19, verses 4 and 5. Um, so this is a provision for the manslayer. Um, so in the ESV, that word manslayer, that's actually the same word in Hebrew as the thou shalt not kill um, commandment and the Ten Commandments. So for the one who's a murderer, who's a who uh, who who murders people, um, who by fleeing may save his life. It skips on, gives an illustration of how people can respond to these murders. Like for example, if someone goes in the forest, verse five, with his neighbor to cut wood and the hand and his hand swings the ax to cut down a tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he's able to flee. The whole point is when the person who could have tightened the head of the ax doesn't. And so by their negligence, someone dies. That person is a murderer in the eyes of the Lord. 
And so our negligent disregard for the vulnerable, our negligent disregard regarding our own capacity to um, harm people um, is something that the Lord does not allow. And so in his own instruction, he's saying, if you could have prevented the loss of life and you don't because of your laziness or negligence, the word the scriptures used to describe that is murder. And so I think that we need to understand that a lot of us are probably prone to negligent disregard because we're minimizers. And I just want us to feel the weight of the need to protect life, that if we really want to be pro-life people, we need to be people who tighten the head of our ax on our handle. And so what that exactly looks like in this context is I'm not sure, but I do think it's a weight of responsibility that we should all feel and take seriously. The next point I have is similar, is that uh, faith considers both the weak and the foolish. And this comes from Deuteronomy 22, 8. It's one of my favorite verses because it initially makes no sense, but then um, it applies. Is when you build a new house, so when you're making plans, you shall make a parapet for your roof. So uh, we don't have parapets on our roofs right now. Um, so it's not like we're all sitting because we don't have parapets. But the way that houses in the old times would work is it was usually like a one-story thing and people would actually sleep on the roof. And so you'd store stuff and do activities on the bottom and essentially the top of the roof, these are like old-time huts. And a parapet was actually a wall that went around. Some of you might have bunk beds. The top bunk has like a, a railing on it. This is what it's talking about. It's like a, a railing on your house. Why do you make railings on the top of your roof? The question is who falls off of roofs? It's mostly young children, old people, and idiots. Oftentimes, if you drink too much, you fall off. Oftentimes, if you drink too much and you roll over in your sleep or you're uncontrolled. So um, there's weak um, and foolish people fall off the roof. And it says here, make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall for it. So even this, as we make plans, God is requiring that we consider the weak and the foolish as we make plans. Otherwise, whose fault is it? It is your fault, says the Lord, if when you make plans, you don't consider the weak and the foolish. And so this is similar to the last point. We don't want to be negligent and disregard, but also as we make plans, um, we need to prepare. Like this is additional financial costs. Parapets, you know, in, in the time when there wasn't a lot of abundance, um, parapet was more work to make. It costed more money to make. Um, and it, you know, whatever the reason is, is we just need to prepare to, to bear the cost of considering both idiots and the weak. And I'm not saying those are the same thing. But think about who are the weak people in your on your small group, who are the peop weak people that you consider. Um, when you make choices in the coming weeks regarding this virus, will you consider um, foolish people and weak people? God's word requires us to. Um, the third thing, or the fourth thing I want to talk about is uh, actually from the New Testament in the section of 1 Peter. So I went to McClintock High School and I had this, uh, you know, they require certain, certain amounts of fine arts credits. And, and in, in taking my fine arts classes, there's this woman who taught ceramics who was uh, pretty nuts. She looked like she had had a really good time in the 70s and had been, she'd been recovering ever since, though not fully. Uh, you know, she'd regularly get, you know, um, ceramic stuff in her hair and it would kind of look like this, like peacock. She always looked surprised, like a deer in the headlights, always, you talk to her and it was always a shock. Um, and so because she kind of seemed a little nuts, you know, you kind of, um, you learn to kind of, she'd say a lot of things that you're just kind of like, I'm not gonna listen to that. But one of the things I remember, we'd make these um, really misshapen uh, pots and whatnot. And then we came to the day where we had to glaze it and they come out with these glazes and they all look ugly and 
some kind of like weird off color of like tan or brown. And she says, here, put this. I said, I want to paint it blue. And she brings out this ugly brown color and says, here's blue. And I was like, you've done too many drugs. That's not blue. That's not even close to blue. That's so far from blue. Uh, she's like, no, trust me, it's blue. I'm going, well, it's this brown or that brown. So anyway, I I uh, didn't listen to her and I ended up trying to like find the color that I thought was the most blue. And it, it even then I kind of like mixed two of them together to make it blue. And I tried to paint this thing and everybody else followed directions. I didn't trust the teacher. Uh, and I just kind of did my own thing. And mine came out this ugly, nasty brown color. Everybody else's thing came out like this shiny, radiant hue um, that when the, the paint went into the fiery furnace and was, uh, you know, the chemical reactions happened, it came out, it came out this beautiful, this color, and mine was not good. Likewise, she had, remember saying that there was these, uh, these things you had to do that you couldn't put too much clay in one spot. Otherwise, when it went to the furnace, it would explode. So you had to keep the walls thin. I still thought like, I cook calzones and they don't explode. She doesn't know what she's talking about. So I didn't trust her again. So I would put these, uh, you know, big hunks of clay into the kiln and come out and sure enough, the clay exploded. And so my pots failed the test and they failed to become beautiful. Other people who followed directions, they, uh, their things were tested properly. This is, this, this pottery analogy is what uh, Peter's using here. And it's used this fairly regularly that we're like clay that we go into the fiery furnace. So it says here, so that, so I'm starting verse six. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. So this is like this point here, is that faith helps us see possible beauty in the midst of our suffering and our trials. Not saying that everything is beautiful. Trials are really trials. Suffering is really suffering. But faith gives us the eyes to see the possible beauty. Even this idea of this word tested here was actually this Greek word dokimos. And when something went into the kiln and came out, they'd stamp the word dokimos on it saying, this survived the trial of fire. And so sometimes we need to understand the fact that going into the fire and out of the fire is making our faith more beautiful. Sometimes we don't know if we trust in money until it's taken away. Sometimes we don't know if we trust in health until it's taken away. Sometimes we don't know if we trust in something filling the blank until it's taken away. Uh, and we need to really grieve those things. I'm not saying things are good. They're really suffering. They're really trials. But sometimes these things are going to beautify us as a church, beautify us as individuals. That something that's an ugly color of brown goes into the kiln and comes out and it's blue. Sometimes something that is soft goes into the fire and comes out stable. Um, and the question is like, there's a sense in which we're being tested and we want to be proven. And so we want to have the eyes of beauty looking for how is God creating beauty in me? How is God creating beauty in us? And in a way, how is God possibly creating beauty out of ashes um, in this American culture moment regardless? And so faith has eyes for that. And the last one here I want us to look at is the book of Habakkuk, is that faith helps us connect to God in all circumstances. So a lot of times we think that faith is opposed to fear. Either you have faith or you have fear. This is not necessarily the case. Oftentimes we think that what separates Christians from non-Christians in these moments is whether we have faith or whether we have fear. But that's not really true. What separates believers from non-believers or people of faith, people not of faith, is not whether they have fear or not, but what we do with our fear. Where do we go with it? 
how does it react? You know, my son, Jay, he's very little. He's still kind of uh, not really well formed yet, I guess. But he just started uh, reacting in fear to things for the first time. Before, he would only cry when he's hungry or tired or had a stomachache or whatever. Now he's starting to cry when he's afraid because he'll see an unfamiliar face or whatever it is. And even then when I stand up too quickly, he'll in fear reach out. And, and what happens is sometimes uh, I'll be holding him and I'll stand up and he'll reach out and grab my finger. You know, before when you're a kid, you just, when he's little, you just put your, and he closes it. It's like a reflex. But now there's actually this reaching out um, afraid thing. And what's hilarious is like, if he thinks that him holding on to my finger is going to keep him from falling because he is totally weak. Like there is, there's not a chance that that would actually do anything. But in this instance, his faith in me is not actually preserving him, but it's connecting him to me. And so a lot of times we think that if I have faith, then I won't be affected. Or if I have faith, then everything will be fine. But faith often is us as God's children, just wrapping our hearts around the finger of the Lord and it's his arms that are holding us and he's the one that's protecting us, but it's faith that is connecting us relationally to him. And so faith is a, is a, is a means of connection. It's relational trust. And so this is actually what's going on in the book of Habakkuk in verse 16, chapter three, verse 16. Habakkuk says this, I hear in my body trembles. He's, he's somatically reacting to the coming, my lips quiver at the sound rottenness enters my bones he's sick to his stomach my legs are trembling beneath me he sounds very afraid yet i will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon those who are invading us so people are coming in there's an invasion there's really an invasion it's not made up and habakkuk is saying i'm really really afraid i'm gonna wait and then he turns to the Lord that rather than just letting his fear drive him away from the Lord, he lets his fear drive him into the hands of the Lord, into the arms of the father. And he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, nor the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. No matter how poor we get, the flock be cut off from the fold, there'd be no herd in the stalls. Yet I'll rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Do we have that type of faith? The faith that is able to notice our fear and turn to the Lord, the God of our salvation, that even if the stock market does not ever come back up, even if the coronavirus spreads like crazy, even if pandemic upon pandemic ring out, even if we never um, get to gather again in this beautiful building, even if... Uh, you know, I don't get to see my aging uh, grandfather because of the travel restrictions and he passes and I miss out. Even if, uh, you know, the tips aren't ever good again at the restaurants because of people don't go out. Even if spring training never happens again and the Phoenix economy loses hundreds of million dollars a year. Even if, uh, are we able to rejoice in the Lord and take joy in the God of our salvation? This faith um, is... Uh, the type of faith that I think God calls us to, an even if faith, a no matter what faith, a faith that is not grounded in circumstance, but is grounded in ultimately the fact that Jesus will come back. And we, we need to understand this, that for us as Christians, our faith is not that in three weeks things will be better. Our faith is not that in three months things will be better. Our faith is not that in three years things will be better. Our faith is that at some point the Lord Jesus Christ will return in the flesh and make all things new. And that ultimate hope, that ultimate trust that God will come back and work all things together for good 
that is where our hope is in. We need to remind ourselves that we follow the way of the suffering servant, Jesus, and God loves the son. And yet he allowed him to suffer. And God loves us and he might allow us to suffer. Why? Sometimes we don't get to know. Sometimes we do know. We probably need to be careful about connecting those dots too quickly. But for us as Redemption Gateway, we need to be a people who understand that faith is about connecting with the Lord. It's about reaching out and being with him. It's, it's about a picture. Of, so I actually have this painting in my, in my office, and it hangs there. And it's this picture of these two very large hands, meant to be pictures of God's hands. And there's the ocean in his hands, and the ocean is storming and storming, and it looks like a chaotic ocean. And then in the middle of the ocean is there's a little person on a boat. And in these type of moments, it's easy for us to feel like the storm is gripping us. And we're tossed to and fro by the winds and waves of what's going on. Uh, and that might be true. The storm is very real. But the question is, who is holding the storm? And we as Christians believe that the storms are real, but that the Lord ultimately holds the storm. In that short term, medium term, we're not sure how things will go. But in the long term, we know that Christ is king and he'll rule over all things. And so I want us to be a people who really turn to the Lord. We notice our fear. We turn to the Lord in the midst of our fear and connect with him because he's there to protect us and love us and work all things according to the good purpose of his will, which includes us being conformed to the image of his son. So let me pray for us and then we'll wrap up. Lord, calm our hearts quiet our minds. I pray that in the racing thoughts that dominate us and rob us of our sleep, I pray that we um, will see and sense that you are close, that you're connected, and that you feel along with us our stress, that you are a good father who is affected by his children. I've heard it said that parents can only be as happy as their most unhappy child, and I sense that's true for you in this, that you are connected to our grief, you're connected to our brokenness, and you're sat along with us. But God, I pray that we would um, see you as this good father who also allows his children to stumble and fall for the sake of our growth and development. Name your son, we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, our benediction this morning, I'm going to end where Matthew started us off. I just want to read uh, Psalm 62, verses 1 and 2, and pray this will be true of all of us today. For God alone, our souls wait in silence. From him comes our salvation. He alone is our rock and our salvation, our fortress. We shall not be greatly shaken. Pray you have a good rest of your Sunday.